Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabity.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking on Books, Books, Books with American writer Bonnie Garmus about her debut novel, Lessons in Chemistry, which has been an instant New York Times bestseller and is being made into an Apple TV series starring Brie Larson. It was published here in Australia by Doubleday in March 2022. Let me start by telling you a little bit about Bonnie. Bonnie is a freelance copywriter and creative director who's worked for a wide range of clients, writing speeches, campaigns, video scripts and presentations for her mainly male clients that will become relevant and focusing mainly on technology, medicine and education. Lessons in Chemistry is her first novel. It was the subject of a fierce bidding war at the Frankfurt 2020 Book Fair with Doubleday beating 15 other publishers. It sold over 75,000 copies, which is absolutely extraordinary, in the UK in its first eight weeks. As I mentioned, it's being made into an eight-part Apple TV series with Brie Larson as the executive producer and the star. And I believe the screenwriter for Erin Brockovic is involved as well. It's been translated into more than 35 languages. It's listed on more recommended reading lists than you could poke a stick at, listeners, but including the New York Times, the Washington Post, The Observer, The Guardian, The Atlantic, BBC Radio 2. It featured on a number of lists at the beginning of the year as most anticipated books and most anticipated debuts. And I thought one of the really lovely things is, is that in the expression that comes up in almost every review is completely delivers on expectations. All of the reviewers have said wonderful things about it, but these are my two favourites. The Guardian described it as a polished, funny, thought-provoking story with sentences so stylishly turned, it's hard to believe it's a debut. And Kirkus Review, this is my very favourite, said a more adorable plea for rationalism and gender equality would be hard to find. Bonnie is an American writer, but she has been living in London since 2017. Bonnie, welcome to Books, Books, Books. It's so wonderful to have you here. As I mentioned earlier, I loved this book from the moment that I read it very early in the piece. I have given it to countless book-loving friends and every one of the people that I have given it to has thanked me profusely and said that they in turn have given it to two or three friends. So it's really wonderful (laughs) to be speaking to you. Oh, Nicole, it's so wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. And thank you for all your kind words about lessons in chemistry. I'm going to start by asking you to tell us just in a few sentences what lessons in chemistry is about. Okay. Well, lessons in chemistry is about a a woman chemist in the late 50s, early 1960s. Her name is Elizabeth Zott, and she is fired from her job at a research institute for the crime of being pregnant. Elizabeth goes on to host a TV cooking show, but instead of teaching 
cooking. She's really teaching that cooking is chemistry because it is. And in doing so, she ends up empowering a nation of women to remember what they're actually made of, even down to, to a molecular level. And uh, she also transforms quite a few men along the way. <laughs> I'd like you to read just a short extract. And I thought I'd get you to sure. start just with the opening pages of the book, if you'd like to do that, Bonnie. Yes, no problem. So the first chapter is called November 1961. Back in 1961, when women wore shirtwaist dresses and joined garden clubs and drove legions of children around in seatbeltless cars without giving it a second thought, back before anyone knew there'd even be a 60s movement, much less one that its participants would spend the next 60 years chronicling, back when the big wars were over and the secret wars had just begun, and people were starting to think fresh and believe everything was possible. The 30-year-old mother of Madeline Zott rose before dawn every morning and felt certain of just one thing. Her life was over. Despite that certainty, she made her way to the lab to pack her daughter's lunch. Fuel for learning, Elizabeth Zott wrote on a small slip of paper before tucking it into her daughter's lunchbox. Then she paused, her pencil in midair as if reconsidering. Play sports at recess, but do not automatically let the boys win, she wrote on another slip. Then she paused again, tapping her pencil against the table. It is not your imagination, she wrote on a third. Most people are awful. She placed the last two on top. Now, most people, most young children can't read, and if they can, it's mostly words like dog and go. But Madeline had been reading since age three, and now at age five, was already through most of Dickens. Madeline was that kind of child, the kind who could hum a Bach concerto but couldn't tie her own shoes, who could explain the earth's rotation but stumbled at tic-tac-toe. And that was the problem, because while musical prodigies are always celebrated, early readers aren't. And that's because early readers are only good at something others will eventually be good at too. So being first isn't special. It's just annoying. Madeline understood this. That's why she made it a point each morning after her mother had left and while her babysitter neighbor Harriet was busy to extract the notes from the lunchbox, read them, then store them with all the other notes that she kept in a shoebox at the back of her closet. Once at school, she pretended to be like all the other kids, basically illiterate. To Madeline, fitting in mattered more than anything, and her proof was irrefutable. Her mother had never fit in, and look what happened to her. Bonnie, thank you so much. Thank you. You got the idea for the book after you had been in attendance at an all-male meeting in your job as a copywriter. What had happened mm -hmm. at that meeting? <laughs> well, I've worked a lot in technology, and technology is, is well, that's a lot of men. And I was sitting in this meeting. I had just presented my ideas for a campaign, and there was it was met with a lot of silence, a few you know, cleared throats. And no one really commented on it. And a few minutes later, a uh, vice president who was in that meeting went ahead and said, wait a minute, I know, why don't we do this? And he presented all of the ideas that I had just presented as if they were his own. And no one said anything. And I did. I said, I, you know, I just said all of that. Those are my ideas. And he said, no, no, those are my ideas. He got full credit for those ideas. And I went back to my desk and I was just furious. And instead of working, I felt like 
Elizabeth Zod, who had been a minor character in a book that I'd started years before and had never finished, I felt like she was sitting there with me. And she said to me, you think you've had a bad day? Well, get a load of this. And that's the, that's the day I wrote the first chapter of Lessons in Chemistry. So I wanted to ask you about that. I've read that she had been a, a minor character in one of your earlier novels, which you, I think you started, but you didn't finish. Had yeah. you always had in the back of your mind that you would return to Elizabeth Sott? Because she is such a striking, brilliantly conceived character that it's hard for me to imagine that you could have just put her away forever. Had you always thought in the back of your mind that you'd come back to her and you would make her the centrepiece of her own novel? You know, to be honest, no, because I she had been such a minor character and I knew so little about her. In that book, Madeline was the protagonist. She was grown up and she had a daughter. But it was that day, the only thing I knew about Elizabeth Zott from that other novel was that she was sad. She was a chemist and she had become a TV cooking show host. I didn't know anything else. It wasn't until that day at my desk that I realized she wasn't just sad. She was mad. <laughs> so that's when it kind of took off for me. So you've talked about some of the other influences, some of the other starting points for you. One of them was um, Betty Friedan's 1963 classic, The Feminine Mystique, which you reread. Yes. How did that inspire you? Oh, it was incredibly inspiring. You know, I, I think maybe like most kids, I never really thought about the era that my mother lived in uh, and what kind of challenges she faced. She was just my mom. Well, this happened to be the era that Betty Friedan had written about. And when I reread that book, I started to see my mother and her friends in an all new light. And I realized, wow, you know, the limits that they lived under were extreme, in my opinion. And I did want to set the book at that time because I needed reassurance that we'd actually moved forward in the world, that, that women were actually gaining traction. Because that day in that meeting, I wasn't at all sure that that was happening. Yeah, so I wasn't sure. That's why it set them. But Betty, Betty's book really revealed to me things that I had not understood about that generation and what they'd had to put up with. We'll come to talk later about Elizabeth's path and what she endures. But can you just, you, re, you referred to those limitations. Some listeners will be familiar with them and others won't. Can you just go through mm -hmm. some of those limitations on women in the 60s? Yes. So I was very surprised to learn that if you were a woman back then and you got pregnant, you could not hold a job. It was a fireable offense. Um, and also, of course, if you were unwed, unwed and married, even worse, it was a scarlet letter for you. Um, but also women back then could not sign checks without their husbands co-signing the check. Their names were not on the deeds to their own homes. They had no legal right to their husband's paycheck. So if their marriage ended, they were, they were completely without recourse unless they somehow got alimony, which was really iffy. So for women back then, it was pretty tough. Not only that, women were essentially, if they did work, they were one of three things. They were a nurse, they were a teacher, they were a librarian. My mother happened to have been a nurse, which she loved, but that was it. The novel took you about five years to write. I hasten to mm -hmm. add in between your other significant professional and family commitments. What I thought was interesting was that you've been working on it from some, for some years and then your family moved from the US to Switzerland and then to London. And when you got to London, one of your daughters saw something on a Curtis Brown website and she suggested that you sign Curtis Brown being, a, of course, a very famous international literary agency. 
and she suggested you sign up for a six-week online course with Curtis Brown called Right to the End of Your Novel. What did you learn from that? How did it help you? Well, you know, my daughter, my daughter was uh, was really funny. She knew that my novel was almost done. It was about two thirds of the way done. And she was just, I think she was irritated hearing me say, I'm never going to finish this. So, you know, she said, oh, come on, sign up for this course. I didn't know anything about it, but I signed up. And what I learned uh, from that course was just actually one thing. I was stuck. I was kind of not able to move forward in the story anymore. And in that course, the person who teaches it, her name is Anna Davis, she just said this one thing that really resonated with me. And she said, you know, if you're stuck, make something happen. And I, I, I don't know why that wasn't so obvious to me before. Lots of things happen in the book. But suddenly I went, oh, I'm just going to make something happen. And that was it. That was, that was, those were the words I needed to hear, and I was off. And that was really, really helpful to me. The book then very famously has gone on, oh, sorry, went on to be the subject of the most fiercely contested book auction at the 2020 Frankfurt Virtual Book Fair. There were 16 publishers all bidding for it. Now, prior to that, I've seen you've described yourself as the rejection queen and you've talked about um, you'd written a 700-page novel, which had, had it really been rejected by 98 publishers or was that just a figure you that it seemed to have been 98 publishers? Was it actually it was 98? 98? It was 98. It was it was kind of funny, though. No one actually read a word of it. As soon as they saw, well, one person did. As soon as they saw 700 pages, this is how naive I was to any would-be writers out there. Do not, do not write a 700-page novel as your first novel and submit it and say, by the way, it's 700 pages. No one is going to look at it. One woman finally did read, I think she read 10,000 words or 20,000 words, she requested a sample. And then she wrote me right back. She said, okay, I love this. I love the voice. I love everything. But I am not going to read to the end of this because you as a debut author have no business writing a 700-page novel. Do you know how hard that is to sell? It's impossible. Don't, don't make this mountain for us. You're not going to get anyone to take this on. And then she said at the end, her, her email, I have to say, it was kind of nasty. At, mm. at the end of her email, she said, if you're smart enough to write a, a shorter book of reasonable length, I'd be happy to take a look at it. Well, I never sent it to her. I never sent lessons in chemistry to her. But you know what? I did take her advice. So in a way, I'm indebted to her. Nevertheless. <laughs> so was, is it that was, the novel that Elizabeth Zott came from, that 700-page one? No, no, that was my, Elizabeth thought came from my first novel attempt. And then this other novel is completely different. Um, and I still really love that story, uh, but it's completely different. And then that day at work, Elizabeth thought came back from that very first novel. So this is my third attempt. Lessons in chemistry is number three. Yeah. I know you've been asked this before, but for the benefit of our listeners, there's a lot of chemistry in this book. I'm not a chemistry student, nor am I a science buff of any kind, but there's a lot of you may say entry level, but to me, it was quite complex chemistry in the book. And I loved reading about how you educated yourself by buying a 1950s textbook in chemistry. And then I read that you even conducted some chemistry experiments in your London flat. Would you like to talk a little bit about how you educated yourself about chemistry for the purposes of the book? Sure. You know, I, I am not a scientist, although I have, as a copywriter, you always work on things you don't know anything about. So, researching or, or doing the research for something new is not new to me. Um, 
I've had to teach myself all sorts of things over the year years, but chemistry was a whole new level, I have to say. I got this textbook off of eBay and I taught myself very basic chemistry. Now, the problem with the book is and with science is that science marches forward. So this book, the chemistry book had to be from the 50s because my book ends in 1963. You cannot write about anything new. Um and you know, the periodic table has added lots since 1963. So you have to keep confining it, which made it a real challenge. As for the experiments, I bought, I also bought a children's chemistry book, uh, children's experiments, which they have since banned because there have been a lot of accidents um, with this book for kids. And I, I have to say, I had a few accidents, a few fires that the London Fire Department has a really great response time. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's uh, it was really interesting to kind of educate myself and do these things. And I, as I did it, I became more and more entranced with the science. And I started to realize, I mean, it's it's really alchemy in a lot of ways. It's really really fascinating, and it's it's actually reachable for every single person on the face of the earth. So if you want to teach yourself chemistry, you can. I mean, basic chemistry. You'll never be a chemist doing it my way, but you can learn a lot about the world teaching yourself chemistry. Let's move to talk now directly about the book and let's start with your wonderful, subversive, brilliant, spirited um, main character. I mean, she really is one of the most striking female characters I've ever really had the delight of getting to know or meeting. What's she like? What's Elizabeth Zott like as a person? I think Elizabeth Zott is, you know, she's a rationalist. She sees everything in scientific terms. She's a rationalist in a way to protect herself from her sad past. Um, She doesn't have a lot of friends. She's a misfit. She doesn't really belong in society. She has done a lot of self-education as well. And I think, you know, for Elizabeth, she never really saw herself being loved by anyone. She only wanted to be respected for her ideas and her mind. And so for Elizabeth, that was probably the most important thing. Um, And she also just has this frustration with society that it is so slow. It's based on myth. It doesn't understand that what it's, what kind of ideas it puts out really harms people, holds people back. And she's outraged by it all. She just doesn't understand why anyone believes anything. Let's talk a little bit about her early career. And I just should add here, I, I want to be very careful of, in our entire conversation to avoid any spoilers. So, um, this mm-hmm. is if you think I'm being a little elliptical at times, it's because I want, I, I really want to avoid spoilers in this book because there's so many lovely twists and turns. So, she has a master's degree in organic chemistry from UCLA. She was on her way to a PhD, but for reasons that we won't go into, that was thwarted. She starts at the Hastings Research Institute. Tell us in what position does she start and how is she treated there? She, is, she starts as a low-level chemist. Uh, she's not a tech, which is even lower. She's a low-level chemist, and she is immediately assigned very simplistic things. Um, she probably, you know, Elizabeth is very beautiful. Being beautiful and being a woman in science I'm quite sure everybody thought she was only hired because of the way she looked. I wanted to make her beautiful, by the way, for that reason. 
to add another layer of unfairness to her life, to be judged by the way you look. That's also the only way she's ever put on television. They would never put back then a woman who wasn't beautiful on television. So she had to be beautiful to strike against her, but she is really fascinated by research on abiogenesis. And that is a that is a still a chemical mystery that has not yet been solved. A lot of people have worked on it over the decades. And um, she herself believes that she can find the answer to this to this question. But she kind of has to do it on the sly because she's supposed to be working on low-level, you know, amino acid studies. It's a depressingly authentic portrayal of what life must have been like for any woman in science in the 1950s trying to break into what clearly was then, and we'll come to now, a very male-dominated world. We see her battling at the, the lower levels, discrimination, sexism and misogyny, and then it rises to higher levels of what's pretty clearly sexual assault. I wondered about the research that you did about what life was like for women in the sciences in the 1950s? Well, it's really interesting. I mean, partly Betty Friedan's book covers a little bit of that. But then, you know, my own mother had been a nurse and she had to give up her career to raise children. There were four of us. My mom always said she loved being a mother, but she never she never stopped the sentence there. She said, but I also loved being a nurse. And, and she wanted uh, to be a doctor, your mom, didn't she? My mom told me that she wasn't smart enough to be a doctor, which was really annoying to me as a child because my mom was the smartest woman I had ever met. She, I mean, I knew that all the way through my life. She was really smart. And I think she kind of said that because she was saying, you know, prepare yourself. You're not going to have opportunities. Women don't do this. Women can't do this. And, uh, you know, that was a really hard message to hear. We were four girls um, and none of us, none of us really felt like, I think my mom ended up raising four feminists. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, I think it, it was really interesting, but yeah, I think, you know, all of those things of researching what women, uh, what happened to women back then, I didn't know this. It was one of the big ages of depression among women. Um, and a lot of women felt like they just, they had no purpose in life except to change diapers. And there's nothing wrong with being a stay at home mom. There is something wrong if that is your only choice and you're mm. told to do it. Mm. And that's not what you were meant to do. Some of these hideous male characters, again, without going into details, but there's Dr. Mayers or Myers at UCLA. There's Donati at the Hastings Research Institute. I wondered if they were based on real men and if the anecdotes about them were based on real stories or whether you had created them entirely. I created them entirely. I, you know, I think there's a really huge danger of using real life people in any kind of fiction. Um, I would never do that. Also, if you do that, you seek control of your characters. You don't get to, to tell them, or they actually tell you what to do. Um, you don't get to use your imagination. You're kind of blocked into something. So I don't, I don't do that. The only character in the book who's actually based on someone live is the dog 630 was based on my dog Friday. But uh, the other characters, including Elizabeth Zott, are all from my imagination. Bonnie, I was wondering what response, if any, you'd had from women scientists today. Have many of, have you, well, have you had feedback? Have you had responses from women working in science today to the book? And I wondered if you had, what did they say about 
the extent to which things have or maybe haven't changed all that much? I've had a huge response. I've gotten hundreds and hundreds of messages from women scientists all over the world saying that the lab Elizabeth Zott works in is the same lab they're working in today, which I have found so depressing to hear. However, these women are standing up and you know they're trying to make inroads. They're trying to make paths for other women to come forward. But I have gotten some very disturbing messages from women at leading universities around the world in PhD programs being sexually harassed and assaulted and have had to leave. This is in 2022. Things have not changed very much for women in science. And I I find that deeply, deeply disturbing to leave out half the population in in an area as important as, as science is ridiculous. But also scientists themselves know, they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that a woman's brain is not somehow less than a man's brain. So for a scientist yeah. to be sexist or to be, you know, racist or any of that stuff, they know better. Yes. And that's what I find disturbing. Yes. All right. Let's talk about Elizabeth meeting Calvin, her soulmate. So I'd like you to start by telling us a bit about Calvin Evans. What's he like as a person? Well, Calvin Evans, uh, I made Calvin Evans um a rower um, for two reasons. One was uh, I'm a rower and I wanted to put something in the book that I actually knew something about without having to research it, but also because rowing is a very uh, cooperative sport. It doesn't seem like it is, but it is. If you're a good rower, you are communicating and cooperating with everybody else in the boat at such a level that allows the boat to move more swiftly than another boat that might be full of much bigger, stronger people. Um, I wanted that as a to be a juxtaposition between that and a normal workplace where people are just always fighting against each other, not cooperating, not collaborating. But Calvin Evans, so he's a rower. I should say rowers are sort of cultists. Once you're a rower, you're in the cult. Everybody knows, you know, this is all you think about. You think about the water, you think about the oar, you think about the other people on the boat all day long. You retell your row to another rower whenever you meet them. It's bizarre, but this is how it works. And uh, I've heard from a lot of rowers, wow, I love the rowing in your book. It's exactly, exactly how it works. And I said, yeah, I'm a rower. (laughs) So he's a rower, but he's also very, very lonely. Calvin himself has had a, a bad past. And he has had to overcome that. And why he did it is through science. So he becomes this brilliant chemist. He meets Elizabeth Zott. He is the only man to recognize that her brain and his brain are the same. And he cannot understand why no one supports her research. So Calvin's a little bit, he's almost, you know, he just doesn't understand sexism. Like why, why would that, why would there be that? And, you know, he has no experience with women at all. And so when he meets Elizabeth Zod and he realizes this is the very first person he can talk to about science at the same level, it's a huge relief for him to find her and for her to find him. And so they respect each other. It's a meeting of the minds. And that is really important to both of them. And I think you describe the way the relationship develops very beautifully. There's the initial meeting and then they they go together to a cafe and they 
they talk chemistry and he talks about bringing her onto his team after she has told him about the discrimination that she's dealing with on a daily basis. And as you say, it's it's very clearly a meeting of the minds. In fact, it's such a meeting of the minds that it almost never gets off the ground as a romance. But then when it does, it really takes off. Tell us a bit about the relationship, the nature of the relationship between them. Well, I think, you know, I think they're really interesting. The two of them will not talk to each other about their past. They completely avoid talking about anything that might, I think they were both embarrassed by their roots. But what's interesting to me about them was this connection they have over science. You know, love is chemical. I I sometimes think people don't quite understand. There's a reason why you don't walk down the street and fall in love with every single person that walks by you. Love is very chemical. And it starts with, it doesn't have to start with, but it often starts with the so-called lust hormones, you know, of um, estrogen and testosterone. But it also involves all these other hormones. Oxy, um, well, vasopressin, for instance, dopamine, all, all of these things um, really have, tell your body, your brain is telling you this person, this person, this person. And you have to listen to that. Calvin and Elizabeth, do listen to it. What you're talking about there has touched on one of my absolute favourite passages in the book where Elizabeth is telling the story later on about their love and she says, Calvin and I were soulmates. And then she says the way she describes their relationship, she says he was the very first man to take me seriously. Imagine if all men took women seriously. And then she talks about chemistry and says They're the real rules that govern the world. When women understand these basic concepts, they can begin to see the false limits that have been created for them. And she says it's all about atoms and molecules. And I think, yeah, I think that's that's a really beautiful description of the relationship in the way that you've just talked about it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it is really interesting. We do forget that we're just atoms and molecules. Yes. We are matter. And um, matter can neither be created nor destroyed. It can only be changed. And so that is the basis of the world. It's also our basis. And Elizabeth knows this and Calvin knows this and they change each other. Elizabeth is a catalyst for change and her TV show becomes a catalyst for change. And she changes lives throughout the book, just mm-hmm. being who she is. But she and, and Calvin become this new bond. And the book is about bonding and what creates the bond and why bonds are so important in science. So, yeah, I loved I loved their relationship. It was really fun to write. <laughs> As you said, they both come from troubled family, very troubled family backgrounds, which, uh, which eventually they do talk to each other about. And one of them says, I haven't got a note for which one it was, but one of them says, while we may be born into families, it doesn't necessarily mean we belong to them. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about that and about the notion of family and the extent to which you create your own family, which is not necessarily the one you came from. So Calvin and Elizabeth very much create their own family. Yeah, you know, I'm an adoptive mom. And so two, I have two kids, um, two kids of color, actually. And, you know, as, as an adoptive parent, I think you get this incredible benefit and honor of looking at the world in a different way and realizing again that it is, these are chemical bonds that you're creating with people. They're not, you know, it's funny, family, we often say family is biological. It's actually chemical. 
And so sometimes there are people who are born into families and feel like, well, I really don't belong in this family. I feel funny about this family or I'm treated badly or whatever. And um, those people have to go out and create a new family on their own. And that's what Elizabeth Zott does. She creates her own family. It takes her a while to understand that this is what she needs to be doing, but it is what she does. And I think I have had the honor of talking with so many kids, thanks to my own kids, who have felt displaced in their own families and have wondered, you know, where is it that I belong? And it's really been an eye-opener for me to understand how difficult it has been for so many kids to wake up and feel like, especially kids who are gay or trans or who are, you know, some kids who've been tossed out of their families. I really want to explore that in the book because it is important for people to understand that you don't have to judge yourself by your family if you don't fit. You're not alone. A lot of people don't fit. Let's move now then to look at the relationship between Elizabeth and her daughter, Maddie. So I know we've jumped ahead there and I'm I'm doing that deliberately, listeners. I won't say anything more about the relationship between Calvin and Elizabeth. I'm going to leave you to discover that for yourselves. <laughs> I love the way you write about the early days of motherhood where um, Elizabeth says she's talking about the challenges of parenthood. She says it's it's not a job, it's it's indenture. And then she said it's, it's like taking a test for which she hadn't studied. I love those descriptions of parenthood and the early challenges. But let's talk now a little bit about Maddie, her daughter. What's Maddie like? Well, Maddie is a combination of, uh, well, she, okay, I will say Maddie is very, very smart. Now, she is very smart for a certain reason, two certain reasons, really. She has a very special relationship with her dog, 630. But she also is being raised by a woman who refuses to put limits on her child's development. Elizabeth Zott believes that her child should be able to explore as much as possible. She believes she doesn't underestimate her child from the very beginning. Elizabeth Zott under, underestimates no one. And so because of that, she allows her daughter to explore, to do things that I think most parents might say, no, honey, you're not old enough. You're not smart enough. You're not this or that. You know, does it kind of get Maddie in trouble? Yeah, a little bit. Um, but she has other protectors there to kind of balance out Elizabeth's a little bit carefree approach to parenting. And so she she develops this ability to read at a very young age. Um, and I think that that's not actually that unusual. You know, we tend to say, oh, kids can't really understand what they're reading. Well, that's that's really not so true often. Um, but Maddie does learn to read at an early age. And because of it, reading, as always, expands your mind, takes you into a different world. And she becomes very, very bright. She's also very tall and very gangly, and she doesn't fit in anywhere. So she's a little bit like her mom already. And that worries a lot of other people on Madeline's behalf. I love all the references to reading and we see part of the reason she's such a good reader, no doubt, is because her mother's been reading to her from when she's been a baby. So she's reading her Charles Darwin when she's one. Um, 
Maddie's reading Charles Dickens when she's in kindergarten. I love the bit about her getting in trouble at school for asking where the Norman Mailer books were in the <laughs> kindy library. But there's something else very lovely. I'm going to come in a moment to talk about the relationship between Elizabeth and her wonderful neighbour, Harriet Sloan. Harriet becomes a bit of an observer for us, an objective observer for us, the reader of the relationship between Elizabeth and Maddie. And she describes, she sees them in their very early days and she's she's had four children herself, but she's obviously really taken aback by the closeness of the relationship. She describes it as a mutual admiration society. She says it's amazing that the mother is learning as much from the child as the child is learning from the mother. And it seems to me that Elizabeth is a really absolutely fantastic mother. And I wondered what impact her own um, less than satisfactory childhood and mothering has on her and the way that she is a mother to her daughter. I think a lot of women become mothers and say to themselves, I'm not going to do what my mother did. <laughs> and for Elizabeth, that is certainly true. Not so much my own experience. My mom was great. But I think for Elizabeth, her mother was, you know, she was awful. Um, I also think Elizabeth is a scientist through and through. So when she becomes a mother, she treats motherhood as the ultimate experiment. She has been tasked with the experiment of raising another human being. And so she's collecting data all the time on her child. And she's measuring things. She uses analytics before analytics was a word. You know, she is measuring her daughter. She is trying to figure out how this experiment is going. And she fails a lot. That's okay with Elizabeth because scientists fail all the time and they're not afraid to admit that they failed. And so for her, she's having, she, she realizes, by the way, she has underestimated how difficult it is to run this experiment. Her child doesn't, doesn't do what she's supposed to do. She doesn't sleep when she's supposed to sleep. She doesn't eat what she wants to eat. You know, she, there are all these things that as a mother, you know, oh yeah, I know. You know, I remember as a mom, somebody, I said, oh, I'm going to just make sure my child's in bed by eight. And they just laughed. <laughs> you know, doesn't work that way. No. You know, they're human beings. Yeah, they, they've, got, they've got these other ideas and needs. Um, so Elizabeth, she does approach this completely as an experiment. And I think, you know, and she has a lot of love for her child, of course. But mostly she's looking at it as this incredible experiment. Mm. Let's look then at the notion of female friendship, um, which we really see developed through the relationship later in her life between Elizabeth and Harriet Sloan, her neighbour. Early on in the book, we learn that Elizabeth's not good at making friends and that she can't understand, one of the reasons for this is that she can't understand the illogical art of female friendship. Would you like to talk a bit about that and why Elizabeth isn't so good at making female friends? Well, Elizabeth had a very poor role model in her own mother, but she also has always just been somebody who is different from everyone else. The illogical part of female friendship for Elizabeth Zott goes back to elementary school when all of us would have friends who would say, I have a crush on this boy. And then you weren't, you weren't, you know, she, Elizabeth's like, well, do we tell him? I mean, why don't you just tell him? Why, why is this, there this elaborate ruse? Why does everyone just have to lie and pretend you don't have a crush on someone? Just say something. And so she, of course, does not follow the rules that these girls have set up for her of how to be a good friend. And she doesn't understand the rules. They don't make, they're not logical. <laughs> they really aren't logical. And so she has a very tough time from the beginning. But when she meets Harriet Sloan, 
these two women could not be more opposite if they tried. You know, Madeline, um, I'm sorry, Elizabeth Ott is 30 and Harriet is around 55. And Harriet is very conservative and Elizabeth is very liberal. And the two of them come together and they discover a friendship that ends up molding and changing both of them for the better. And I really, really enjoyed writing Harriet. She's had a hard life too. You know, and people have said to me, a lot of people in this book have had a hard life. And I think, is there anyone in the world who hasn't had a hard life? I mean, to some point, all of us have experienced some pretty tough stuff. And uh, I really wanted to have, just like growing, being collaborative and cooperative in the workplace, I mean, have that juxtaposed to the other workplace of there not being collaboration and cooperation. I wanted Harriet and Elizabeth also to be polar opposites who come together and they find common ground. Could we come back to you referred to that notion of from a young age, kind of the underpinning of those little girl friendships is deception and lying. I know that that's, you've talked about that as being one of the other themes of the book. Would you like to expand a little bit on that? Yes. I mean, lying is one of the huge themes throughout the book. And I think we tell ourselves lies in society. We accept lies in society because we've heard them forever. And even though they may not make sense to us, we just go, well, that's the way things are. And so when Elizabeth is being approached by these girls and they want to have her participate in this elaborate ruse of who likes whom and who should say what to whom, Elizabeth just cannot buy into that. She doesn't understand it. It just doesn't make sense to her. And as she grows, she realizes that for her, religion is also a myth. It's a ruse. It's full of deception and lies. It also, religion is crafted many times to keep women down. So she doesn't accept religion. She doesn't accept anything that's beyond her ken of science, of evidence-based controlled science that has been proven over and over to make sense. So for me, what I was trying to get across there is just how important it is to question authority, to question society, to question religion, to question anything that tells somebody what they can and cannot be. Because the fact is, we're all the same. We're 99.9% the same. It has absolutely nothing. There's Mm. Yes, biologically, there's actually no such thing as race. That is a social Mm. construct. Mm. There's the experience of race, which has been incredibly ugly Mm. through centuries now. But there's actually genetically no such thing as race. Mm. And that has really bothered me and bothered Elizabeth. But there's also this idea that women are less. And that's not true either. Women have never been less. Mm. And scientists know that. That's one of the really um, sort of trademark features of Elizabeth, isn't it? That she she just refuses to accept lies. Like that, just because people have said things over and over, women are inferior, women can't be scientists. Those are lies, and she refuses to accept them. Yep. Yeah, that's it's, exactly it. It's really it was really fun to write someone like that. By the way, where she just says no. <laughs> What do you uh, what do you think about the casting of Brie Larson? Are you excited about that? And are you going to be very involved in the production of the Apple TV series? I'm not at all involved, to be honest. Um, we sold the book to them last 
gosh, it's been is right after the auction. They, I think we signed, we inked the contracts early in 2021. But um, Brie Larson had asked for an exclusive read. I think a lot of people had been very interested in producing this, which was a huge surprise to me, um, of course. And then she came out of the blue and said, I want an exclusive read. And at the time, I said to my agent, I don't know what that is. And she said, all I can tell you is you do not say no to somebody who's won the Academy Award for Best Actress. And I said, oh, you know, good point. Um, So uh, Brie Larson Zoomed with me. and we had a really nice conversation. She's really down to earth. Um, and I think she'll be really great as Elizabeth Ott. She really wanted to be an executive producer. Yeah. I have two others. Mm-hmm. I have uh, Jason Bateman as one of them and uh, Michael Costigan, who did Brokeback Mountain. And then we have um, Aaron Brockovich writer, Susanna Grant. Mm-hmm. And also Hannah Fidel has joined the team. And there's a writer's room. I wanted to work on the script, to be honest. I've written a lot of scripts, not a movie, not a series. I know that's a different world. But, you know, thank God my agent said, you don't know how busy you're going to be in the next few years here, but you're going to be very busy. And um, they were a thousand percent right. I cannot believe I thought I could do both. It's It would not have been possible. Um, the good news is, is that the series is already going to start production. Um, probably in July next month uh, in LA. It won't be on TV until another year from now. So 2023, summer, fall, somewhere around there. But they've hired an awful lot of people. They're keeping the, cl- the casting close to their chest for now. And um, But we should know pretty soon. But I I really loved something, and this brings me to my next question. I wanted to ask you about um, Elizabeth. It seems to me this is a book very much about relationships. As I was sort of making, we've got Elizabeth and Calvin, we've got Elizabeth and Maddie, we've got Elizabeth and Harriet, we've got Elizabeth and 6.30. So 6.30 is the dog. Before I ask what I wanted to ask, I did read, which I loved, that the only casting decision you'd been involved in was that they did get your advice about the casting of 6.30, the dog. Yes, exactly. You know, it was really great. They actually did say, you know, go ahead and tell us who you see in these roles. When I was writing it, I have to be honest, I never saw anyone in any role because all of these people were completely in my head. And I just, of course, I never thought it would be made into, I never thought it would be picked up, much less made into a series. But as for 630, um, I said, okay, so 630 is a lurcher. And you know, this is a this is a UK dog. This is this is not an American dog. They don't know what lurchers are in the United States. So I ended up sending pictures of lurchers so they would have an idea um, of what they look like. I don't know uh, about the dog casting yet. I mean, who actually got cast, a cast? I just know that they had an awful lot of dogs who were vying for the role. <laughs> so 6.30 is this beautiful presence in the book. Um, we first of all, we see his relationship with Calvin. Then we see his relationship with Elizabeth. Then we see his relationship with Maddie. And I read somebody asked you why you decided to include, well, sorry, apart from saying 630 objectively like that, we also get quite a lot of 630's point of view. And when somebody asked you why that was, you said, I wanted to have a voice from the other side of the animal kingdom, commenting on us, loving us, but being kind of fed up with us. Could you talk a bit about that? (laughs) Yes, exactly. I, you know, I think one of the themes of the book is underestimation. And we as humans have this horrible tendency to underestimate everybody, every other living being in the animal kingdom. 
And we really shouldn't because there's only one animal in the animal kingdom that is currently ruining the environment, and that is us. Uh, 630, I really did not know he was going to have a point of view, but when he started narrating, commenting on our decisions and the way we act towards each other and how often we lie. Now, I don't know if dogs can lie, but 630 is just appalled by how many things we tell each other that aren't true. And so writing his point of view was absolutely probably one of my most favorite things to do. His his misunderstanding of some things that we do, his confusion with it, but also his abiding love for us. But then just also his fed upness, you know, it's just like, come on, you know, just, just do the right thing. And we don't, we just march on doing what we want. And he doesn't approve. Bonnie, I don't want to give too much away, but let's just talk a little bit about the show, Supper at Six. So events unfold in one way or another. Elizabeth Sott, research chemist, ends up with her own TV cooking show, Supper at Six, which becomes a runaway hit. I'd like you to talk about the difference between what the producers have in mind for the show and what Elizabeth delivers. Well, back then... In that era, if you were a woman on a TV show, you could do two things. You could hold up your hands and say, here's what, what's behind door number three. Or you could do something housewifey, which would be showing women how to clean or cook. So I chose cooking for Elizabeth. Obviously, she's a chemist, and it is actually a fact that cooking is chemistry. And I just love the idea that this woman would go on the show and say, well, I'm not going to read the cue cards. I'm not going to wear those clothes. I'm not going to put up with all this junk you put on the counters. I'm doing it my way. And she's so powerful that they, that her producer doesn't know what to do with her. And uh, he, he kind of reluctantly allows her to, to craft her own idea of the show, even though it's, it's terrible for him because she's ruining his career. She's ruining his life. And he allows her to keep going because his name is Walter Pine. Walter Pine has, he gains so much respect for her. He realizes now here is a person who knows who she is and what she can do. And she, she takes that confidence onto the television and she starts empowering all these other women to think about who they are and what they're doing. They're not just making dinner. They're nourishing a nation. They're changing the way people think. They're changing their lives. And she really, really wants to get that across that there is no such thing as an average woman. There is no such thing as an average housewife. And so she's a rebel. Or a she's stupid one. You know, exactly. There's no such thing as a stupid one. And she just refuses for women to accept these notions any longer. And by teaching them chemistry, which is what she does, um, they begin to see what their actual roles are in the world. And then, you know, other men, there are a lot of good men in this, in this book as well. And other men see this show and realize, well, you know, I've been held back too. There's this expectation of me and what I'm supposed to be like in the workplace. And so she is educating a lot of people through science about what is actually possible in their lives. And at the end of it, her show, you have a meal on top of everything. So you know, it works out for everyone. It's a win-win, but she's subversive and her, her executive producer absolutely hates the show and wants to get rid of her. Mm. And, and I think one of the points that you make really forcefully is that 
she doesn't talk down to her viewers. She does, she say, and she says things like, I take cooking seriously, and I know that you do too. I'm a mad keen cook. I love hearing things like that. Um, I'm not a chemist. I didn't, hadn't thought before about cooking being chemistry, but I will think about that more, especially as I'm a baker and baking <laughs> particularly involves chemistry. Oh, yes. But the other thing she says is she just, she just um, pushes right back at them. She says, I won't perpetuate the myth that women are incompetent. So she speaks right back to them. She refuses to wear the skin tight dresses. She rejigs the ridiculous set that they give her. And as you say, she she gives women a real sense of self-worth and self-esteem by making them realise, as you say, that the work that they are doing is critically important. Exactly right. Exactly right. You know, I think for a woman to go on TV and do that was, she wouldn't have been on TV very long. But for Elizabeth to do it, because of the way she talked and the way she lifted people up, sort of, you know, by accident in a way, that even men could not refute what she said, because it was true what she said, and people are hungry to hear the truth. I'm going to end with a lovely quote of yours about the the book that I'd just like you to comment on. Uh, I think somebody asked you, why did you write the book? or What was the message you wanted people to get? And you said this, At a time when integrity seems in alarmingly short supply, I wanted to write a book about a woman who refused to cede hers, no matter what the cost. My greatest hope is that Elizabeth Zott and her science-centric outlook on life, love, work and parenting will remind us not only who we are, but what we're capable of becoming. I love that quote, Bonnie, and I'd like you to just talk to it a little bit. We have a lot of strong people out there in the world right now who are trying to address some of our biggest issues. And I I look to them right now and I just think these are the role models that can lift us up. We need to listen to them. We need to follow them. We need to support them. We need to yell out and say yes to them. I think right now, if more people could say no to the people who are still so racist, still so violent, still so misogynistic, we would be a lot further faster. People are very timid to say no to bad people. And you know what? It's not that hard to say no. It really isn't. You just have to practice it a little bit. And the more we say no to those people, and the more we say yes, the people are actually doing things to make the world a better place. Well, there's a lot of hope out there, I think. I really think there is. But we all need to participate in that. Bonnie, thank you so much for speaking to me today. I hope that as part of your book tour, you're going to come to Australia at some point. It's so exciting now that writers' (laughs) festivals are back on live. um, And I really hope that you will have the opportunity to travel here to talk about this wonderful book, which really is a gift. So thank you. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you for writing this fabulous book. Delete that last bit. Thank you so much, Thank you so much, Nicole. I loved it. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbotty.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbotty, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. 
it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Thank you.